I love that video. It's beautiful. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, I am Pastor Kelly, and I am the youth pastor here at Bethany Baptist. You know, in the history of the universe, it was just yesterday that I was in high school as well, and um, not so long ago. I do remember um, the first time when I was in high school, I heard about environmental responsibility. It was a high school social studies class, probably about 1990. Yeah, that dates me. So the whole sustainability concept was first introduced to the world about 1987. And it arrived on the shoulders of some ecological crises we'd been having. How many of you remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill? That was, yeah, hands, hands, yeah. Um, it took place around the same time as legal action was happening, um, like the first Ocean Dumping Ban Act. And how about this? McDonald's settled a court case by agreeing to use biodegradable containers for the very first time. At about the same time, those late 80s, early 90s, I remember on the flip side, my mom would do dishes cleaning up a meal and she would run the tap water the entire time. She'd wander around the house and clean up, tap water would run. You see, we, we lived in Calgary, but she had grown up in the Great Lakes area of Canada in the 50s. And to her, fresh water was an unending resource. And she passed that misinformation on to me. I was a teenager in school being introduced to the new three R's of education. It was no longer reading, writing, arithmetic. It was, say it with me, reduce, reuse, recycle. My social studies textbook at the time not only introduced us to the new three R's, but also talked about treating Mother Earth, or Gaia, with respect. Gaia is a goddess, a primordial deity. So, being a fervent Christian in high school, they lost me at goddess. Besides, my goal as a Christian was heaven, right? Not this evil, fallen world. What had any of this to do with me? Now, I've come a long way since high school. Uh, so has my mom. So have we all, really. Reduce, reuse, recycle, it's now foundational in our society 30 years later. And companies and households, probably many of yours, are always looking for ways to improve on this. Our views as a society have matured and continue to grow as we gather information and we gain more understanding about our planet and the products that we use. As a fervent Christian, my views on heaven and earth and the final resurrection, they've also matured and continue to do so, I hope, as I study scripture. There seemed to be a tension in the 80s, pretty strong between environmentalism and its zealots and Christianity. Was I imagining things? I was pretty young. Does that tension still exist? Is there tension? between being a good citizen environmentally and being a good Christian? Or maybe we could look at this question from a different angle. Are we called as Christians to be stewards of creation? We've been doing a series this fall called Mine, 
taking a look at stewardship. And we've talked in this series about our stuff and about our gifts, but what about our world? Creation, and if we are called to steward that, what does that look like? As a quick review, stewardship is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. So over the last few weeks, we have been exploring those things that God has entrusted to us and what it looks like to be a good steward or manager of things like our money, our time, our spiritual gifts, our abilities. So what about creation? Today, we're going to explore this through the template of God's big story. Creation, fall, redemption, and resurrection. Nope, redemption and restoration. I got, there's more R's in there. So many R's today. We know this as God's big story. Our story of mankind's redemption. Yet we're closely tied to creation. And if creation is to be stewarded by us, then perhaps creation's story will fit with our big story. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. If you turn to Genesis 1 and 2, you can find the creation account or story there. Verse 27 and 28 says this in chapter 1. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern or subdue it, depending on the version you're reading. Reign or have dominion over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. That seems pretty straightforward. Until you have different people with different opinions interpreting it. For example, I give you a man named Lynn White. In the 60s and 70s, the world was coming to realize that our planet was not faring well ecologically. Holes in the ozone and unending pollution, coupled with a growing population, seemed to be an equation for looming disaster, so the zealots said. In 1967, alongside the beginning of the environmental movement, a man named Lynn White wrote an essay called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. Nothing like this had ever been written before in the academic world. And in this essay, he laid the ecological problem squarely at the feet of Western Christianity. And he used the verses we just read as proof. Man was given dominion over the earth. And the Christian understanding of creation, he said, was that it was meant to serve humanity's needs. And humanity could exploit it to that end however they wanted. That was how Christians saw the world and therefore why we were all in such trouble. 
He also suggested that any religion that equated man and beast or made nature divine, perhaps, would be a better option. Maybe Buddhism or some sort of pantheism. If we could all tap into that, then perhaps that would cause mankind to treat nature with more care because we would be on equal footing or nature would even be divine and so we would treat it more carefully. He painted with a broad brush and he made many generalizations and the damage was done. His essay started a new field of research and Christians were the villains of Earth's ecology. There were many responses to White's thesis, quick rebuttals, hundreds of responses and essays and writings, but it seemed the damage had been done. Thus, the textbook that I read in about 1990 was more New Age philosophy than neutral ecology. It was polarizing. And as a Christian, that made the environmental movement irrelevant. This filtered through to culture as a general assumption that Christians were anti-environment, despite the fact that White's thesis had been refuted many times over. Now, whether there's a grain of truth to White's thesis or not, the real question for us is what does God's word actually say and what does it actually tell us about our relationship to God's creation? White claimed that the Bible says that nature was made for man, put here to serve our purposes and to be exploited to do what, to whatever ends we wanted. Is that true? As Christians, Sometimes when we get to talk to friends or colleagues uh, about Christianity and they're not Christians, one of the evidences that we use for God's existence is the fine-tuning of the universe. The amazing amount of things, evidence, both in the universe and in the world that allow for human existence, off by just an iota, and we wouldn't be here. Time thing after thing after thing. It's quite amazing to look into if you ever get the chance. It seems that this world was designed for us to live here, made by something or someone very intelligent. So yes, it was made for us. And Genesis says that God set us here to govern it, but there is more to it than that. John Walton some of you may be familiar with him now from our Bible reading discussion groups. If you've been watching any of the videos connected to the Bible reading that our congregation is doing through the Old Testament, you will have seen John Walton give a few talks. He's the professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, and he's an expert in the ancient Near East. And he suggests that Genesis was written to explain to God's people, who are, were an ancient Near East culture, that God created the world to be his temple, his dwelling place. Here's a poetic image of that from Isaiah 66, verse 1 to 2. It says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord. By creating the world, God created a dwelling place for himself and saw it as good. And then he made humanity as the apex of his creative act. He made us male and female in his image. 
We read Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern, subdue it. Reign, have dominion over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food, and I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. If you jump ahead to chapter 2, verse 15, he says, it says, God put man in the garden to work it and take care of it. All of this was made to glorify God and for God to have a place to dwell with humanity so that he could have a relationship with them. Humanity Oh, it was, the world was not made to serve man's purpose. It was made to serve and glorify God. Humanity was created to glorify God and to have a relationship with him. Walton says, when we adopt the biblical perspective of the cosmic temple, it is no longer possible to look at the world or space in secular terms. It is not ours to exploit We do not have natural resources. We have sacred resources. And by that, he doesn't mean the world is divine as God, like pantheism. What he means is that because God made it, therefore it's sacred. The cosmos is his place, and our privileged place in it is his gift to us. The blessing he granted was that he gave us the permission and the ability to subdue and rule We are stewards. That comes from a book called The Lost World, and you can find it in our library if you're interested in reading more by John Walton. So, creation was made by God. It's precious to him because he designed it as his place to dwell, to rest, to take up residence in, so he can have a relationship with us. And then he set humankind over it to manage it for him. This sounds like Christians should be green. Pro-environment. But what about the fall, the next part of our story? So, we've established that the Bible says humanity was created to take care of creation, with both humanity and the planet made to glorify God, to serve his purposes, to be his dwelling place, But that doesn't necessarily mean that this wasn't misinterpreted by Christians. Was White's thesis correct? Is Christianity responsible for the ecological problems of our age? Now, as I mentioned before, he painted with a very broad brush. The rebuttals and the response essays pointed out that he left many potential causes and factors. He left them out. It just isn't that black and white. While Christianity as a Western civilization through medieval times was, I guess you could call a world power, that doesn't mean people were all Christians living by a biblical worldview. Other factors like politics and wars and capitalism eventually and so on and so on, they all played their role in the abuse of the earth. In fact, one major factor that White never addresses 
which is odd because he was a church man, is the fallenness of humans. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're new to church, the fall is a churchy word for, um, in order to describe how our world is broken. Humans sinned, and that takes us right back to the Garden of Eden. Humans disobeyed God and got themselves kicked out, separated from God, and destined now to die a physical death. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, we read of God cursing the earth to grow thorns and thistles and be in conflict with mankind as we try to grow food. And after a lifetime of toil, we're destined to die and return to the earth from which we were made. See how creation is so closely tied to humanity's fall? Turn with me now to Romans 8. We're going to start at verse 18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. The fall, as part of the big story, tells us three things. First, humanity is sinful and broken. We began to set ourselves up as God or worship the creation instead of the creator. Secondly, this caused humanity to be separated from God and death became a part of our world. And third, creation was also cursed and closely tied to humanity's brokenness, though creation itself hadn't done anything. So this is where the wrongful treatment of creation springs. Our sin, our greed, our hunger for power, lies, manipulation. We recognize all of these things in the earth-destroying practices that humankind has carried out, especially in our latest history that we know more about since industrialization. This is not just from Christianity. It crosses race, religion, politics. It's a human problem. Today, we have many ways in which we could destroy and are destroying the earth. We have nuclear capability to wipe ourselves out. Several times over, we're expanding we have expanding deserts, we have plastics and microplastics in our ocean, we have garbage that is ever abundant and increasing, which we can't burn because that would put crazy amounts of CO2 in the air. We have holes in the ozone. We have farming practices that use caustic chemicals and keep animals in decrepit states and we're killing our bees. We have superbugs and all kinds of disease that bring death, oh, doom and gloom. The world's large-scale ecological problems sp are springing from the human condition of brokenness. But there is hope, both for the human condition of brokenness as well as our planet. And here is where our story shifts to redemption. John 3.16, that wonderful verse says, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's kind of cool because in the Greek, that world is cosmos. The entire universe and everything and everyone in it. 
for God so loved the cosmos. We know that Jesus died to pay the ransom for every human soul who will trust him, to break the curse of human brokenness and restore relationship with God. And that is closely tied to creation, not isolated from it. We've read how creation was cursed because of our sin. Continue reading in Romans 8 with me at verse 19. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Amen? We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Do you see here how Paul compares creation and its state with our longing for redemption and restoration? As believers, we live in this tension of the now and the not yet. We have been redeemed, but we aren't yet with God physically. We don't yet have our resurrection bodies. Romans says we groan inwardly as we wait. But verse 22 says creation is groaning as well. So what are we to do in the meantime, the now? Well, we have the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. We're to walk in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, so we have fruits of the Spirit developing in us and spiritual gifts that he has given us. If that is the case, Jesus dwells within us, our separation from him being set right in the now. Does it not follow that our actions of love and care and kindness would extend to the environment around us, our work, our homes, our land, our container garden, Colossians 3, 17 sums up a passage on how to live as a believer. Paul says, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We do not live in a spiritual bubble isolated from our material world. We are formed from that material world by God's hands. And it is as much a miracle as him breathing life into us. God delighted in making the world and us. And he placed us here as stewards for his glory. And that role is restored to us with our redemption. And we will experience it in fullness at the restoration. It's that tension of the now and the not yet. In the now, sometimes it looks more like a fight <laughs> because nature's still marred as we are. Disease, for example. We fight disease because it isn't natural. It leads to death. It's part of that brokenness 
things still need to be put right. And we get to be a part of that fight, that redemption. What does stewardship of creation look like in the now, as well as fighting disease? How can we be a part of helping creation and people flourish? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus, not just to other souls, but to their environment? Well, it's going to look different for each and every one of us because we've each been given different gifts and abilities and opportunities, and we've each been put in a certain time and place. One obvious example is missionaries who work to bring clean water to poor villages as well as the gospel. That's an easy one that we can all agree on. I can't imagine people going in and saying, Jesus loves you, but leaving them in their filth and disease without helping them get clean water. Are you looking for opportunities to bring God glory in all you do where you are? Are you finding ways to maximize the gifts that God has given you in order to contribute to the flourishing of the world? Are you seeking to be a good steward? Can creation somehow be included in that? As you do, my guess is that you will stand out because living in such a way is rebellion to the norm, goes against the norm, not falling in with the norm of corruption and decay in the human condition. Most people tend to live for themselves. I want you to meet Joel Salatin. He runs Polyface Farms in Virginia. I encourage you to Google him and look up his website. He says, I am first and foremost a farmer, but not a very ordinary farmer. In fact, I'm known as a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist lunatic. He practices forgiveness farming, all based on principles from creation and scripture. Take a look. We, we view the, the physical universe, the, the creation that God made as essentially a physical object lesson of spiritual truth or, or say divine attribute. So the question is, uh, let's take for example forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness. How do, we, how do we create a food and farming system that, that physically demonstrates, like an object lesson, that demonstrates forgiveness? And, you know, and, and ecologists would call this uh, resilience or shock proofing or whatever. Uh, but I like the word forgiveness. Uh, because the fact is, you know, nature's not always uh, benign. You know, there are, there are windstorms and droughts and floods and cold and hot. So how do we, how do we make, um, forgi how do we make a forgiving um, farming food system? Well, obviously it would be one in which um, the immune system of plants and animals gets stronger and stronger all the time, rather than weaker, uh, which is op opposite what the current industrial food system does. It makes the immune system weaker and weaker, and you have more and more, you know, vet bills and chemical, you know, pharmaceuticals, whatever. It would be a system that reduces floods and, um, and increases hydration during droughts. So we build a lot of ponds. And, and these ponds catch, catch runoff when it, when it would be a flood problem for people downstream. And we can meter that water out during the regular times um, and, and hydrate the landscape. Um, it would be one in which fertility increases and increases, but increases from real-time on-site Solar, solar energy converted to biomass, not dependent on petroleum-based chemical fertilizer for fertility. 
And so we do large-scale composting to, uh, to insource the fertility rather than to outsource the fertility. And, uh, and, and this, this creates a tremendous forgiveness because now we don't have to buy the fertility. We don't have to send military personnel to the Middle East to make sure we continue to get you know, petroleum-based chemical fertilizer. Suddenly, we, are, you know, we, we have, we have um, closed that carbon loop, and that gives us um, resilience or forgiveness. What, you know, what the, let's take uh, another you know, very spiritual attribute. You know, let's just take beauty. All right. Um, what does a beautiful farm look like? Well, a beautiful farm um, has uh, diversity. You know, it's it's it, it's not one that you have to walk through sheep dip and put on a hazmat suit to go visit your food. Um, you know, it's it's aesthetically and aromatically, sensually romantic. Uh, it, it, it's attractive. You know, uh, we as believers should be attractive. We we you know we should be um, we should be magnetic to, to people around us. And so our farm, people should come there and see, wow, you know, this is beautiful. What's different about this? Um, how about take another one? Order. You know, God is a God of order. Um, very much a God of order. And so how do we have a farm that exemplifies order? And so, so we, for example, we look at nature and say, well, how does nature sanitize behind herbivores? And you see birds following herbivores. And so we move the cows every day to mimic the way herbivores move in nature with, with wolves and grazing patterns using electric fence. So we move the cows every day. And then a couple days behind them come the laying hens in eggmobiles. They free range out, scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larvae, spread the cow patties into the, into the uh, soil and essentially act as a biological sanitizer behind the cows, mimicking the order of the birds behind herbivores, the egret on the rhino's nose. You know, so these are just, these are, you know, they're, they're big principles, but, um, you know, a, a final one I'll just mention, for example, is uh, one of, you know, a spiritual truth is God is ultimately a God of relationship. And and think about, you know, the average industrial farm today, there is no relationship. You know, it's one species, one thing, packed together. In fact, uh, there aren't even very many farmers. You know, it, it, there's nobody there. And, um, and so our farm, with all the multi, you know, multi-speciation, is just, is just literally a choreography of complex interrelationships of different gifts and ta talents of different plants and animals working in symbiosis. Oh, that almost sounds like the church, you know. And and so these are these are these big principles that that we should be building into our farmscapes that then just immediately connect with people to help them to realize this is spiritual truth. This is divine attribute going on in a visceral way. Now, we aren't all going to become farmers, but we can be inspired by how seriously Joel takes his stewardship and of what he's been given. What have you been given? I have one more example for you. Her name is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She is a climate scientist. She is Canadian. She is an evangelical Christian, and she's married to a pastor living in Texas. Now, one quick point, I'm not asking you to agree with her, just to listen to her video. 
As Christians, we can disagree on many things and do so in a loving way. In fact, in my research, I found that Joel Salatin would likely disagree with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe about climate change, but they both agree as Christians that one of their jobs is to steward creation, to take care of the planet and the environment around them. Take a look. One of the first times that we went to church in Texas, I met a couple and we were introducing ourselves. They asked, what do you do? I explained that I studied global warming and they said, oh, that's wonderful. We need somebody like you to tell our children the right things. You would not believe the lies that they're being taught at school. They told us that the ice in the Arctic is melting and it's threatening the polar bears. I said, well, I'm afraid that that's true. <laughs> There's often a perceived conflict between science and faith. It's a little bit like coming out of the closet, admitting to people that you are a Christian and you are a scientist. My husband, he is the pastor of an evangelical church, and many people would approach him to ask him questions about climate change. If anything, there's even more questions in the Christian community because we are targeted by so much of the disinformation that's going on. So that's why my husband and I decided to write a book together, a scientist and a pastor, on what a faith-based response to this problem looks like. With climate change, much of our response to this issue is emotional. The fear of how our lives would be irrevocably changed if we uprooted our entire economy and how our rights to enjoy the luxuries of energy and water might be ripped away from us. Well, as a Christian, we're told that God is not the author of fear. God is love. When we're acting out of fear, we're thinking about ourselves. When we act about love, we are not thinking about ourselves, we are thinking about others. Our global neighbors, the poor and the disadvantaged, the people who do not have the resources to adapt. And so I believe that we are called, first of all, to love each other, and second of all, to act. Am I a climate change evangelist? The evangel means good news. Climate change is not really very good news right now. But at the same time, I think it is good news to know that we have choices. And by making wise and responsible choices now, we can ensure that we protect the things that we care about the most on our planet for the benefit of the people who we know personally and those who we don't. book is Climate for Change, and she also has a PBS show that you can find online called Global Weirding. I encourage you to check that out. So these have just been two examples of green Christians stewarding creation. They've made it their life's mission to live for Jesus using their gifts. They're inviting conversation and helping to make our planet and its people flourish, bringing redemption to the earth. They get a ton of criticism. In fact, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe has had death threats. It's what happens when you stand out a little bit. But they are part of the solution, not the problem. So, one question remains. Why bother 
If this earth is passing away, whether you're a Christian and believe this, or maybe you're an evolutionist and you believe this. You know, humans are part of the problem, it's just natural selection, just let it happen. Well, this is where we move to the restoration part of our story. When Jesus rose from the dead, it was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a physical one. He had a physical body. Remember Thomas and the other disciples? They touched him and they ate with him. And then they relayed to us their eyewitness experiences. God made a huge statement here. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead physically and is an example of what is promised to us as believers. We will rise physically in new bodies, and that means we need a physical place to live. We won't rise spiritually to an immaterial heaven somewhere away from here. Revelation talks about a heaven coming down to us, to earth. Let's reread Romans 8. Pick it up at verse 20. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Verse 20 says, creation will be freed from death and decay right along with us. This creation right here, this is the one we're working with. And think about it, in regards to ourselves, do we just sit here and wait till we die for our new bodies? Do we just, it doesn't matter what happens to these bodies, we just wait for Christ's return? Well, hopefully not. Hopefully we're living life to the fullest and taking care of our bodies and doing the best with what we've got and maximizing the gifts that God has given us, living in light of God rescuing us from brokenness. That same attitude should be held towards creation. It's not disposable. We look forward to the complete release from death and decay. Yeah, we don't know exactly the process of how that will happen. But in the meantime, we fight against the death and decay and we help offer redemption. We take care of the world around us, maximize the return on investment that we've been given. We seek to maximize the gifts in light of the greatest gift of salvation. We do this by bringing healing and flourishing to our space and others in it. We are the children of God. We have access to the holy. God has made us holy. This should bring us joy and excitement as we get to spread that news to others and invite them in. Metaphorically, it should be a bit like having the Midas touch, or perhaps a green thumb. So, have we answered our question? Is there tension between being green and being a Christian? Here's what we know. God created this world 
this cosmos, and he deemed it good. He made it to dwell in here with his people, made in his image. He gave it to us to manage, to steward. But then we messed it up. We sinned, and we brought in a curse upon creation, and we invited in death and decay. But then, instead of destroying it all and wiping us off the map, which God had the right to do, this is how God loved the cosmos. He sent his one and only son to die so that if we believe in him, we will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus beat death and decay at the cross and he rose from the dead and he promises to restore and heal so completely in the end that we will get new bodies and a restored creation. Then we can dwell with him and return to our original purpose of living in direct relationship with him and stewarding his dwelling place. Let's take care of what God has made and given to us in the now, especially in the light of our future hope. For Christians, living in the tension of the now and the not yet, it might not be easy being green, but it is good. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for who you are. You made us and you made the world we live in and I pray that we would find ways to um, bring redemption as you gave redemption to us and have saved our souls and we get to bring others into that as your Holy Spirit leads. May we also bring that to the creation around us. Show us ways, Lord, to steward all our gifts. We give them to you. Work in our hearts, Lord, as we turn to communion and physically enact and remember what you did for us on the cross. In your almighty name we pray, amen.